0: Entrepreneurship has become a global phenomenon. Uncover the stories of entrepreneurs and investors worldwide, from Sub-Saharan
1: Africa to Silicon Valley and beyond, here on the Global Startup Movement. Now, here's your host, Andrew Berkowitz. We are here with Osaruman Osamuyi, who is the author of the subtext and an entrepreneur in residence at the Africa's Talking Labs, uh, based in partly in Lagos, partly in Nairobi. We sat down after the Africa FinTech Summit for uh, just a quick coffee in Lagos last time I was there. But Can you start us off from when you arrived in Lagos and tell us a little bit about how you originally got into this whole startup world? I moved to Lagos in early, Gen- in, I think it was January 8th,
0: 2016. Before that, I was, so before I got into the tech industry, I was a film score composer, making music for films, games, etc. I dropped out of school to start that business, which was one of the most, most foolish things I ever did, uh, although I, I'm really happy I did it. And after that, I took a job at Tech Cabal, a tech publication covering um, African tech. On October 20th, 2015. And then by January 2016, my boss, then, Bancale, asked me to come you know, come do this together. And that was really my introduction into the tech ecosystem. So before I did that, I, I knew nobody, knew nothing about anything that was happening here. In fact, during the assessment test, I remember that one of the questions was about Jason Njoku, and I Googled who Jason Njoku was. <laughs> so it was really, I just got thrown in, in the deep end. And so I went from knowing nothing about the space to writing three, four articles about it every day. That was a really quick education. And over time, you know, when you write about the space enough, when you read about the space enough, um, talk to enough people, you begin to get a sense for what's going on. And over time, hopefully you earn the right to have an opinion. And when I did that, I started to expose some of my opinions through a newsletter, which we started back then, Super Gangster. Some people thought it was interesting at the time. And then when, I, when it was time to move on from journalism-ish or blogging, I decided I was going to join a VC firm because I thought it, was, it might be valuable to apply some of the theories or some of the frameworks I had in the real world. So as opposed to waking up every morning and saying, um, this is what I think about this company, this is what I think about this company, with no real-world impact or no real ways to test those opinions, I thought it might be interesting to apply those same filters, those same frameworks to try to identify what the most compelling companies to invest in are and, you know, how, crucially, you know, what ways to help those companies succeed uh, post-investment. Uh, so I joined Ventures Platform. It's a, operate uh, operating accelerator in Abuja, but now mostly invest through a fund and um, run some innovation programs for some corporates. Uh, so I did that for a bit, um, and now uh, four months ago, I joined Africa's Talking, the research lab and startup studio at Africa's Talking as an entrepreneur in residence, which is what I spend most of my days doing uh, these days.
1: And I definitely want to dive into, um, into you know, what really your work with Africa's Talking and your initial impressions of Nairobi but before we dive into that i think the uh, the topic on everyone's mind right now and a lot of what people are talking about on africa twitter is uh, is the jumia ipo so you know the, the dust has really settled on it i mean it, it performed very well right after it, they officially listed and I, in my opinion i think global investors kind of saw this as um, you know similar to an, an amazon or an alibaba play i think you know, Alibaba has performed really well since their IPO, and uh, this was granted as the first Africa tech startup. The Amazon of Africa is what people are saying. I know there's a lot of controversy around this. So I guess what, what what are your initial thoughts on, on on how they conducted the IPO?
0: I'll start by saying the IPO IP was absolutely great news for Africa. Most of the friction was around, um, okay, so the founders of Jumia, its executives, um, et cetera, are not African, uh, crucially not black Africans. And some people thought that or think that that means that Jumia branding itself as an African company um, is a negative. I definitely understand their concerns, but I disagree with them, mostly because if you ask most entrepreneurs, most investors today, what's the bull case for investing in, um, in African tech, they will give you demographic trends. Um, i try to paint a story which is quite frankly, not very, not as concrete and Jumia's IPO is one data point, or it's one really solid data point, one accomplishment that we can point to and say, this market has been validated. It is possible to build a company in less than 10 years uh, from zero to IPO in this market. You know, the same markets where you see many other players unable to grow past a certain point, the same markets where lots of investment has gone in, but not as much has, not as much returns to invested capital. Um, and so the, that's the way I, I tend to look at it. Jumia existing in this ecosystem, whatever its founding story, is a good thing. Executives uh, who operated, you know, who tried, who designed Jumia's logistics, who who worked on their marketing, et cetera, Those people will go on to work at other local companies and take the lessons they learned, take the expertise, etc. Some of those people will go to found new companies. And as a result of the things they have learned, the, the the people they have met, the networks they've built, those companies will be in a better place than Jumia was when it started. And uh, so that's where I choose to look at it. Even if Jumia is not necessarily African, I, I think it's an African story and one that should be claimed. That's that's where I choose to look at
1: it. Yeah, I mean, and and, and I would tend to agree with that. I mean, I do think that uh, a lot of this. A lot of the conversation i hear i think the point around the fact that jumia is not domiciled in an african country i think it's uh i think that ar- argument has it's a it's a bad argument it has no merit because the structure of a company is not that important most chinese startups are not domiciled in china they're domiciled in either delaware hong kong or singapore I, I didn't know that. Most African companies that do business across the continent, I mean, they're they're typically going to domicile themselves in Mauritius and then have a local or Delaware or Delaware, yeah, and have a local entity spun up in each country, saying they're not domiciled in Africa, so they're not an African country. I don't, I don't think that's a good argument. I do understand the sentiment of them being in Europe, and I I don't know that they have too many developers in Africa, and I think that was a big point of friction, which I definitely understand. But I think overall, it's a, it's a good thing for the ecosystem. It attracts more attention and changes the perception for a lot of international investors that might not have been paying attention to Africa. Now, it's like, okay, maybe there are more exit opportunities than we had initially thought in the market. But I guess it, it's still it's still yet to be seen whether Jumia is successful in the long run. Because I mean, accumulated losses were around 802 million euros, yeah. which, you know an interesting environment because it seems like uh, all these IPOs, all these IPOs that are coming out of Silicon Valley are all operating at losses. So we will see what happens in the next market downturn. If- we'll see.
0: But there's a point that I don't think we should we should lose. The concern I think is valid that local founders or locally bred founders do not have the same access to opportunities as, as uh, Say European founders uh, operating in this market. So I guess that's where this concern is coming from. While I don't agree that that should have been the fo- the, the core of the conversation at Junior's IPO, um, I still think that it is a it's a concern that's valid that we should not be too
1: quick to dismiss. Right, that makes sense. And do you think that's just because of access to capital?
0: It's multiple things. Uh, access to capital is the easiest one to point at, but it's also you know access to say strategic partners. If you Again, again, the kinds of opportunities that you get coming as a German founder into, say, Nigeria, or more, more, uh, more accurately Kenya, you might not get access to the same opportunities if you were dark-skinned from an African country. I mean, I'm, I'm going from Nigeria to Kenya very frequently, and I'm, I'm spending a lot of my time thinking about how to navigate immigration, you know, so I don't take too many tourist visas. You know, like, there's there so many challenges that local founders have to deal with that others do not. And so um, I, I guess that's where a lot of the friction was coming from—that if Jumia is calling itself an African company, then you know it should it should put its skin in Africa's game.
1: Okay, so let's dive into that point of partnerships. So I, I agree with you that Jumia and the founders are in a position and a place in Germany where they have much more access to capital, much more access to a global network of partners. But on the other hand, and this, this translates into your article that you wrote about Mines, which, which is a, a, you know, a a fintech company in Nigeria. The advantage, if the local corporates are willing to be a, a good actor in the ecosystem, the advantage that I see that local startups have in Africa on the partnership, in the partnership realm is that they're in a position where they can partner with local corporates who have the distribution. And be in a much better position to actually capture that local market than a foreign entity that's coming in and trying to replicate a Western business model in country? Hmm.
0: I have conflicting thoughts about that, but um, I'd start by saying that one of the reasons why I think local corporates are not that excited to partner or have not been as enthusiastic to partner with local startups has been that they have not yet seen local startups as substantial. So, you know, within the technical system, we can see. Um, well, we talk a lot about, lots of the impact that we're having and how we're going to change the world, that has not yet translated into, like, say, liquidity positive liquidity events, um, and that's not translated into, you know, business threatening impacts for these corporates. And so, the incentives to partner with a local startup uh, they're just not there yet. But although that's changing, you know, I've seen a couple corporates, like, say, um, ARM, they're starting an accelerator program. Um, I'm seeing lots of banks opening innovation hubs, you know, trying to get into the space and see what's happening, but. It's still early days. Um, I, for one, would like to see, say, a Dangote make investments into either venture funds or there are to companies that are aligned with their business. Um, that would be interesting.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that a lot of these corporates are somewhat starting to understand the importance of at least innovating, just because the, like the, the forces of globalization are affecting everyone, and in corporates in emerging markets are in a position where historically haven't necessarily had to compete at the same level as their their counterparts in the West. But now with globalization, I mean, everyone is facing competition. Everyone feels the need to start innovating at a faster rate. Startups are in a much better position to actually do that than these corporates that have kind of cultures of, uh, that that go against in in the opposite direction of the innovator's dilemma.
0: And one good example of this is Minds. What I find interesting about the company is that uh, as opposed to trying to compete directly or, or circumvent the traditional players, they are building tools to empower them. And so in the same ways that you find a company like PayLater, or they're now called Carbon, delivering loans, uh, or they started out by delivering loans to consumers via an Android app. That's the kind of thing that is basically circumventing a traditional financial institution. And it's easy to see how they can rebuild the banking bundle uh, at the end of that process, by when they own the consumer relationship, um, so you know after giving loans as they have done, they then open up savings and investments. They then um, have a payment wallet from which um, users can, through which users can make payments for their bills, can send money to other people, etc. You know, and basically not have to ever interact with a bank. And it's very easy to see them, you know, getting a banking license. I think I think they already have one now. I'm not sure getting a banking license and basically cutting off the consumers of the future, the most valuable consumers from the traditional financial institutions today. But a company like Minds is taking these same tools as opposed to going direct to consumer, which one might argue uh, might be expensive and, and really difficult in this market. They are partnering with corporates, say, starting with banks, but also telcos to say you have all this data about these consumers, you know you have all the distribution mechanisms put in place Let us deliver innovation to you on a platter, and basically monitor the entire process your transition from an analog world into a digital one um, and in exchange for that we will probably you know do a revenue share or probably have some interesting commercials uh, um, in the back end um, I find that very interesting because it goes counter to the traditional startup narrative you know of telling corporates that they should either innovate or die uh, in this case it then come to innovate or partner with minds or die um, or company like companies like mines um, and so I found that very interesting and I'm hoping to see many more companies think in those terms because as opposed to trying to get the 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 thesis of the internet you know which is that you may not need to invest in all these physical structures to get access to consumers so if you look at things like e-commerce for example if you wanted to sell things say 20 years ago in nigeria you needed you needed to have raised a bunch of money and then go invest in actual real estate the thing you want to do is sell say shoes Um, But you're going to have to invest in real estate, invest in all these structures, which the internet promises to cut out. But we're not seeing that promise playing out in reality. What we're seeing is that the cost to acquire consumers for e-commerce companies, for example, is still very high online. And there's not that many consumers even using the internet anyways, even though they have access to it, um, for multiple reasons we could get into. And so partnering with the established companies that already have access to these consumers, that already have, um, deep relationships with them, that have some data that you might use to inform, you know, some of the decisions you take internally is interesting to me. Um, and I'm hoping I see more companies like Mines moving forward.
1: Mines approach needs to be turned into a case study that's consumed by, like, all emerging markets. Cause I think, and I would love to hear your thoughts on this. I mean, we we are hearing this notion that consumer-facing startups in Africa are like it, it is not really the right approach. It's it's very much a B two B environment. Why do you think that is? Like, is the consumer market just not deep enough, and that, that narrative of the middle class just actually hasn't really come to fruition yet? Like, like people, the average person just doesn't have enough money. Is, is that it?
0: That is one of the reasons, definitely. So if you, if you take the immediate previous generation of technology companies, so you take the to let the NGs take the Jumias, the Congas, etc., They are direct bets on the emergence of a middle class, um, in Africa. We've heard a lot of things about this middle class, um, have not actually seen or heard from them directly. And uh, so I don't know that there's enough. Of a market there for consumer tech companies or consumer internet companies of that flavor, um, but one thing I'm seeing is that if you are going through existing businesses, who probably have larger wallet sizes, um, they probably have more pressing needs, you know, than say convenience, which is what many consumer tech companies end up selling. I'm seeing that a couple more of the companies that are being funded these days, um, are raising investment beyond a certain level, are B two B focused companies. So I mean, you take things, take companies like. Uh, like an Andela, for example, is and uh, Andela does not depend on uh, Adela's business model depends on the wallet sizes in Western countries, not any wallet sizes locally here. And so, if you're selling, say, convenience by matching demand to supply, you are not just competing against other people who are doing the same thing as you. You are competing against non-consumption. You're comp- you are trying to take up an increasing share of a very, very small wallet. You know, and if you are not providing a service that's absolutely central to the user's lives, then it's difficult to, to get adoption. That's one of the ways I think about this. And so, you know, m- most of the businesses that I find uh, a bit interesting are trying to insert themselves into existing value chains where there's pools of capital already being spent to satisfy some, some, uh, some need. And I guess by making some of those things uh, more efficient or reducing costs for those businesses, it's one of the ways that you can drive adoption for your products
1: yeah and it seems to me like to build a successful large consumer facing startup, you have to raise a lot of money very quickly and so like that can be done in Silicon Valley. Uber and Lyft and these fucking scooter companies <laughs> they they you know they they can raise a lot of money very, very quickly, and I think this string of i p o s that are coming out i mean I guess I knew that Uber and Lyft were operating at loss. I didn't realize that every Silicon Valley company is operating at a loss. I didn't realize that. And so that, that can't last forever. We'll see if these companies can actually become profitable pretty soon. And, and the reason I bring this up is because how this translates to Africa is like there's not enough local capital and you can't raise capital quick enough on the continent to replicate some of those business models.
0: My direct answer to that question would be no. I don't think that we can directly replicate some of those models. I, I suspect strongly that capital efficiency is one of the, is one of the tenth poles that will determine success in these markets, especially when focusing on the consumer markets. My sense is that investment, again, investment in Africa has been increasing at a ridiculous rate. I think last in 2018, I think, uh, according to Patek's funding report, we invested $1.2 billion or so. I mean, it seems small in the grand scheme of things. I mean, compared to, uh, what a company like Uber has raised, for example, that's tiny. But again, compared to where we're coming from, uh, a couple of years ago, the entire continent raised, let's say 300 million, you know, and so to have so much investment going in so quickly, um, and to plot that graph definitely seems interesting.
1: Yeah, and that, and that, and that's an interesting point, though. It's so, like Seed Stars announced an $100 million fund. I think Partech announced they're going to be doubling their fund to, I believe, $143 million. Acumen closed a $70 million fund. Africa invested $168 million. So there's a lot of capital that wants to come in right now. But do you think that there's enough quality deal flow? And I mean, realistically, what it, what is the size of the exit market?
0: That's definitely an interesting question. From my days working in venture, I'm not convinced that there are enough companies to deploy this capital into immediately. So I think from my analysis, every year there's probably maximum eight to ten interesting companies popping up across the continent. You as an investor, you're probably not going to get into uh, up to half of those companies. And to make the fund economics work for the for the fund sizes I'm seeing, you're seeing lots of people having to, lots of these funds having to invest in later and later stage rounds. On the earlier stages, one thing that is interesting is why combinator inflating the valuation of um, local tech companies. I think that's a great thing. For founders because before before we, they had this external validation they used to get pretty unfriendly terms to put it diplomatically but the way i see it some of those companies like while we are making all these all these investments into these companies we do have to think very actively about how the capital is getting returned so in seven to ten years we probably need to be to have created an exit market worth a couple billion dollars for vcs as and asset class to make sense and if we're unable to create an exit market of that size, then I suspect that funding will dry up on the continent, um, especially if the U.S. goes through an economic downturn and um, an equity in in Silicon Valley companies becomes cheaper again. That's definitely something that you could see happening on the horizon, uh, or, or just around the corner, rather.
1: Well, I mean, it has to. It has to, right? Like, so I, I know, I know you're you're a young guy as well. I was in high school in two thousand eight right, when, when, when that happened. And so I, and a lot of my friends, like most millennials haven't really seen a recession, a, a market where money's tight, right? But like the market's been so good since we all entered enter the workforce. We're about, what, nine, 10 years into this bull run. So it has to, uh, the, the chickens have to come home to roost at some point.
0: Yes. Yeah, and I was gonna say that and this is why it's important for me for founders to be able to play defense, um, and to keep, to sacrifice some growth for profitability slash um, cash flow positivity, because if funding mm-hmm. for your company dries up, you do not want to be caught with your pants down. Um, and so you probably want to play the game such that you, month on month, as you're growing, you're keeping profitability within reach. Um, is how I, I'm thinking about it these days.
1: Yeah, man, it is a, it is a, it is a feat to be able to achieve profitability for an African startup. What I've learned of the market, it's really, it's it's hard, man. It's really impressive when I find a startup that's actually operating in any emerging market, really, that, that's achieved profitability.
0: Yeah, well, well, well achieved profitability at, uh, at a certain growth rate, right, uh, right. I, I would say. I, I, this is why I'm filled with so much respect for founders, because they're doing, uh, they're literally doing the impossible, uh, making stones bleed day in, day out.
1: Awesome. Well, I n- know we're kind of over time, so we're going to finish this off with a quick fire round. Four questions, up to 60 seconds per answer. Are you ready? Uh, yes, I am. Bring it on. So if you were going to plant your flag, if you were going to start a, uh, a company today in Africa, which country would you choose and why?
0: Hmm. That's a really difficult question because I'm still in the process of figuring out which of these markets I like the best, um, but I would probably say... Depending on the kind of business, South Africa.
1: So so you, you take me as someone who is really interested in, in philosophy and kind of the, uh, maybe, maybe the, the new age movement. So can you tell us what is your favorite podcast in the philosophy space?
0: Um, that would definitely be partially examined. Like, it's a really good introduction. So it's best to start consuming it from episode one, up until episode 100 and something. I'm not sure where they are right now, but that's what I've been doing and I cue it like every, every two or three podcasts I listen to is an episode of. I mean, like It's pretty good. Um, and they're not pretentious. They're not like, you know, name dropping obscure philosophers trying to sound smart. Like they're actually just having interesting conversations that end up helping you get smarter.
1: Hmm. So based on your time in Nigeria, what is the best restaurant or bar in Nigeria?
0: Oh, that's really different. <laughs> um, for anybody who wants to eat something in Nigeria, um, especially if you're not from Nigeria, I would recommend you go to Nok Bayalara. It's in Victoria Island. And they have the best Amala.
1: And finally, what is your favorite thing about uh, the time that you've spent so far in Nairobi?
0: Nairobi is interesting because uh, it, it points out, uh, or, or it's, it's in some ways the opposite of Lagos. So, for example, the culture in Lagos is a bit aggressive, You know, which is what I'm used to. Nigerians are generally a bit more active and passive, uh, but I find that Kenyans are generally a bit more reserved, a bit more quiet, a bit more calm, um, which is interesting. Um, but my favorite thing about Nairobi so far has been the nightlife um, and also the depth of the of the startup ecosystem here. Um, there are not as many companies as I've seen, um, but the ones that I've seen here, um, this. Probably, I'm probably biased, um, you know, because I'm getting introduced to interesting people. But the ones I've seen have generally seemed a bit more advanced, um, you know, than many of the companies I've seen in Lagos. But of course, there are many more companies being started in in Nigeria, so you know, that's probably the reason that the signal to noise ratio is is uh, is that skewed. I definitely
1: agree with that sentiment. I, like Nairobi and Lagos are the most uh, I spend the most time on the continent between those two cities, and I would definitely describe Nairobi as, as much more calm. <laughs> much more calm than Lagos. Um, but awesome, man. Really appreciate...
0: I, 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 I miss Nigerian food, though. What was that? I said I really miss Nigerian food.
1: <laughs> that, yeah, that makes sense to me. That makes sense to me. The Ken- Kenyan jollof cannot compare. Uh,
0: there is no jollof in Kenya.
1: There is no jollof in Kenya. There you go. <laughs> well, awesome, man. Thank you so much for joining us. I uh, really appreciate you coming on the show.
0: Thank you so much, Andrew. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening. Be sure to add Andrew on Snapchat at Burke. that's A-N-D-B-E-R-K, to see firsthand a day in the life of an entrepreneur in cities all around the world.